Hello, everyone. Hoping you're all well. Matt Egan, Editorial Director of Strategy Next. Thanks so much for joining us again to the Strategy Next podcast. Um, so thrilled to be here and uh, looking at some really interesting content. Now, guys, what I'm going to have to ask for you to do today is to get a bit of a visual because we're presenting uh, some recordings, but it's from a specific section of a, of a webinar which we ran with Dropbox Business. Now, I wanted to just flip this into a podcast because I think that the Q&A component of this is super, super solid in terms of how people should be looking at security with respect to workplace innovation and collaboration. So Dropbox does a lot of work in this space and a lot of work looking at the future of workplace technology and how people are interna- interacting with each other via technologies. Um, so some really good messaging and uh, a really good actual piece. If, if you're interested in focus and sort of how you can sort of get your employees to drive a little bit more focus into their workflow, um, Dropbox has some sensational thought leadership on that. Uh, but anyway, I digress. This one's around the future of secure collaboration. And what I want you to do is um, just visualize that you've listened to the best part of the webinar uh, whilst we then jump into a bit of a Q&A with both of the speakers. So Rajan Kapoor, dra- Director of Security from Dropbox. Um, so he's out of the US. And James Murphy, a solution architect at Dropbox APJ. So guys, we're going to jump into that Q&A component. Um, and I do hope you enjoy because I thought it was really, really interesting. The first one comes from uh, D- Dave Kelly, um, who's who's from New South Wales Health. A really good question, actually. So um, Dave's just had a cloud-based patient tracking project stall uh, due to data and information security concerns. So it's a cloud-based um, application they were looking to kickstart, um, but but it has been stalled due to the, the um, security around it. What can we tell our ICT departments about the level of security in current cloud solutions? And where are we going uh, to be in the short term? So I guess overall the question is, is um, how secure are cloud solutions and, and, and where does the responsibility sit? Um, Chris, I might start with yourself. Yeah, the <laughs> cloud doesn't advocate or uh, doesn't um, remove any sort of security concerns at the higher layers. You know, there's still, there's still a pretty large amount of responsibility laid at the feet of the customer to make sure that everything's secure. About the only thing that you're really, uh, I think, removing from the security type equation that you might have to deal with is the same thing as you would remove if you had a managed service provider, you know, layer one security, physical access, things of that nature. I'm not super worried about those in a cloud provider. Plus, the way that we're handling data, you know, take Rubrik as an example, any kind of physical access into the environment is fairly useless just because of the way that data is encrypted and sprayed across uh, different devices and things like that. And so uh, there's actually this fallacy that, you know, once I put things in public cloud, you know, it's, it's not my problem anymore. I don't have to deal with that. Whereas at the same time, you see S3 buckets constantly being broken into due to lack of any actual security and oversight. So if you have standards and processes today for internal security, and if you look at how those are applied to various applications or the data that, that is being held for those applications, it's really just an exercise of mapping those kind of pieces of rigor towards a public cloud provider, you know, such as role-based access control, different uh, multi-factor authentication devices, token devices, things like that. 
as well as making sure that you have the proper accesses and controls for folks to actually get into that data. It's pretty much the same game. We're just playing it with different services and native cloud native applications in these environments. But if we're if we're starting to worry about physical access or something like that, I, I think that that kind of signals to me that there's a either an educational gap between those that are worried about the security and those that are handling the data, or just some kind of you know maybe that's not maybe that's not where you're looking to invest at the moment until you handle that problem. Yeah, perfect. Rebecca, do you have any reflections on this around around the security of cloud and, and sort of where that responsibility sits? Yeah, I mean, I'd say when you look at a kind of a traditional cloud service provider, it's, you know, like Chris was kind of mentioning, it's who manages like, the actual infrastructure itself versus who's actually managing and securing the data you're storing there, right? So it's understanding that delineation of responsibility for security, um, you know, so the best thing you can do is just ask, you know, ask that provider, ask that vendor that you're working with for this. And I'm, I'm always a little bit uh, suspicious if they say, nope, don't, you don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> that's usually a bit of a farce there. So it's just really getting down and understanding, you know, and talking to that vendor of what am I actually responsible for? And then you come up with your determination of what you want to do to secure that data or that infrastructure. Yeah, brilliant. And we've got a second question. It comes from Mark um, and it's uh, directed towards Chris. So uh, maybe um, uh, Chris as well, as, as well as Rebecca. Um how do you go about uh, looking into infrastructure as code methodologies? Um, what what advice would you give for an organisation that's looking to um, investigate this? So I guess uh, where he's going there is is um, how do you start, and, and do you have some advice on on sort of where you, where you can sort of start to look at this within your organisation? Yeah, I spent a lot of years doing this as a consultant, so the. The process I typically follow is step away, step away from the technology. It's not a technology problem to begin with. And really just start to step into mapping out your processes today to figure out, you know, let's let's take an example of building out services. What do you do to build out a service today? Who's involved? What's the what's the handoffs? Uh, and then how do you measure all of those different things? And then typically the, the roadmap that I subscribe to is uh, figure out how you know, figure out where you have either low-hanging fruit that's pretty fairly easy and low risk to start automating just to get your feet wet uh, so that this, you know, people just often like to go for the hardest and nastiest thing to start automating and, and applying config management as well as infrastructure as code to first. So start with stuff that's easy, that's kind of repeatable. And yeah. what I like to do is actually build out kind of a library of different, different little tiny pieces of automation. As you get more comfortable with that, start stitching it together using an orchestration engine or using something like Terraform for infrastructure as code. Um, start with the non-production environments and then scale it up to the point where you're not really, like you'll know you're there when you can pretty much deploy whatever it is that you want without a whole lot of change control or, or reprisal over fear of risk and things like that. Uh, but, but start small, start easy. And I tend to look for the low-hanging fruit, the pieces of, uh, the pieces of your infrastructure that are fairly trivial. Uh, after you've mapped everything out and kind of figured out where are my big gaps, where is it, where is work in progress extremely high, uh, that is, and where is my critical path? What sits between me and delivering this service repetitiously using a consistent manner, so that automation removes that toil. 
Yeah, brilliant. We'll probably have to move on to uh, the next question. I'll give this one to Rebecca. This is from Gurav. Uh, what are the changes that we should be looking to build into the APIs so that they support the new architectural patterns? I feel like that's a bit of a kind of a loaded question in a, in a way, because it's like, are you the consumer of the API? Or are you more of like the vendor who is developing, right, said API in terms of the architectural pattern? Um, you know, but the first thing is, is, you know, understanding, of course, like what APIs are available to you and then really what use case do you have for consuming that API? You know, that's always, you know, like Chris kind of mentioned, it's always like st step away from actually the, the, the technology for a second, but what's the people, the process, and then the technology. So what is your use case here and who's affected by that? And then how can you leverage APIs to now solve that use case? Um, so that's always kind of step one. And then, of course, the other piece of that is, are the APIs even available to you to do that? And then that also will help you inform that your kind of buyer decisions later on down the road if you know you want to be implementing more of an API-first strategy. Yeah, brilliant. Um, we'll probably have to go one for one. Uh, Rebecca, while, 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 while you're um, uh, still off mute, uh, this question comes from Barry. Um, uh, it's quite a good one. Our IT department have recently started going cloud first for our next business application projects as we expand and continue to expand our business globally. Um, resonating with Rebecca's views earlier, most cloud native applications are startups and quite new. Um, so what would the due diligence questions be that we need to ask vendors to make sure that our data is safe in their environment? Yeah. So, I mean, the first kind of question that I would kind of turn back to Barry would be, what type of compliance are you looking at? Do you have any type of compliance, right? Because that's going to inform, I think, a lot of the questions that you do ask. Um, but if you are looking at the application itself, you know, it will be very much of how is data passed from A to B? Right. And what kind of uh, security are you using for that? And if there is no kind of encryption, then to me, I'm already like on to the next vendor at that point. Um, I think encryption really should be a given. And if it's not, then that's a very kind of scary prospect. Um, but it really it goes back to who's responsible for what. So I always want to know what the vendor is actually securing versus what is my responsibility to secure. Brilliant. That's great. Um, and uh, Chris, I might, I might bring you in here on the next one. So uh, another one, Nabil from New South Wales Health. Um, often the, with the, um, uh, the issue um, around data in the cloud, it sits with data sovereignty um, in Australia, particularly within, within the health um, the health environment. So Nabil's asking, how can we ensure that data is within an allowed region and what are the controls that we can get assurance is is this something that that um that you you personally have looked at or rubric looks at that that data sovereignty piece it's a it's a, a very keystone piece to our strategy for any sort of cloud because everybody wants data to live in a specific place maybe a country a region you know a, a wherever right and so the way we kind of solve that is is twofold one if we just look kind of like rubric as the example the whole idea behind managing data is you should also be able to control where that data lives. And that's multiple steps. It's where, the, where it lives when you actually protect it, where you lives when you replicate it, archive it, all that kind of jazz. And so in this case, the product is rubric, but it should apply to pretty much any product. Uh, when, you're, when you're managing data with a system of that nature, you should be able to control the lifecycle of that data 
down to the granularity of where the data should live. Uh, I would not subscribe to any sort of solution that chooses where to put my data outside of the constraints within that product, meaning I'm okay if it's in different availability zones within a region. That's fine because those are fairly similar in, in geography, but I don't want it to leave that region and I should be able to enforce that. The way that we do it is through policy, but largely um, it, it, it doesn't really matter what, what solution you have. It should be able to do that for data management. If we apply that kind of to the public cloud schema, there are ways from a control perspective where you can limit what regions are available to your environment, which ones are even, quote unquote, kind of turned on or turned off from a usage perspective, mm. and a few other things that you can do to make sure data lives where you want it to live. But that's definitely a control that you have access to from a rubric perspective and from a public cloud perspective. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Nick, I might bring you in here. Um, have you had much experience with this data sovereignty challenge um, when, when working in the cloud? And uh, I guess it comes down to sort of what, what questions do you have to ask? <laughs> the biggest problem I find with data sovereignty is that nobody really knows the right answer. <laughs> there is, depending on the organisation, the state, the country, um, the type of data, it's, it's a little bit of a minefield in terms of what um, the data sovereignty requirements are around a particular set of data. So I think having a very clear understanding of what policy says, you know, broadly uh, is important from from day one. I'm finding certainly in New South Wales, I'm doing a lot of work in local government, the data sovereignty basically says we can put the data anywhere in Australia. doesn't really matter. Um, and even for the most part, most data can actually um, go offshore. So I think you know, certainly from an Australian perspective, I think the data sovereignty requirements are relatively uh, flexible. Mm. Um, but I think you've really got to treat it on a case-by-case -case basis because there are um, exceptions to that rule. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and um, uh, it's, it's a big challenge, particularly um, uh, for those organisations that are working in Asia as well. So I think as Nick, Nick um, referred to, Australia is pretty good, um, but regionally there, there are some challenges out there around data sovereignty. But the communication piece is critical, I think, as, as Chris alluded to. Um, I might uh, finish up with a final question. It's from Sharma. Um, and we've been, uh, Sharma writes, we've been speaking a lot about a hybrid strategy, um, which, which is the reality and could be the reality for most companies. Um, do you have some best practice recommendations around how companies should prepare into adopting a cloud-native strategy or moving to the cloud? So uh, any, any best practice for sort of making these transitions that, that we've been talking about? Um, I'll start with you, Rebecca. Why did I know you are going to start with me on this one? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I think the first thing is understanding your strategy itself, right? So before we get into moving to cloud, um, you know, moving back from cloud or anything like that, or even going multi-cloud, it's what are you gaining from this? Um, and what's best for those applications that are going to be living in the cloud? And then you kind of have to also understand besides just the given kind of performance and deployment and things like that. But it's like, how are you going to monitor it? How are you going to protect it? How are you going to automate certain things? And you really, in my opinion, want to take a very holistic approach. For me, if I can use one tool that works for, you know, AWS and Azure and my on-prem infrastructure, then that's probably the tool I want to use mm. rather than using three separate tools, right? So it is kind of taking that step back and understanding 
What is your process for deploying and protecting and monitoring and so on today? How will that change when you migrate or move to cloud? And then what changes do you need to make to have a more holistic viewpoint? Yeah, brilliant. Nick, did you have anything to add on that? Uh, yeah, always got something to add. <laughs> um, I think the, I'll probably take a slightly different um, angle on this and just, um, you know, in terms of the challenges that I see organizations in, you know, moving um, data and services to hybrid cloud, I think it's um, probably three main things I see, ch you know, challenging organizations. One is, do you approach this as a project or as BAU? Um, and I've seen both approaches and BAU tends to fail every time. If you're going to do this, you've got to do this as a concerted effort with program governance um, and structure wrapped around it. And I think it's also got to be done in an agile fashion. I think moving to cloud using a waterfall project methodology is probably, you know, goes together as well as fish and bicycles. It doesn't really make sense. Um, and finally, I think, you know, if you do you try and build a new architecture alongside what you've got, greenfields, um, or do you try and, you know, manipulate and modify and grow what you've got into this hybrid model? And I think there are pros and cons to both. I've, I think it, there is nothing wrong with starting a new architecture as a greenfields and then moving services to that over time. It's far quicker and far less complex than trying to retrofit a cloud model into something which wasn't designed for, for cloud. So that would be my, my tips. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and and uh, that uh, it's always tough because Rebecca and, and Nick have answered this very well. But Chris, did you have uh, any, any final remarks on that? Uh, I would say uh, probably an element we haven't dug into is uh, figure out where the, the buy-in exists within the company. Um, I've seen so many really well-architected, highly strategic projects completely fizzle out because it lacks the executive oomph you know, the, the buy-in from the C-suite or from the people that actually have the wallet, the juice, you know, the, the executive authority and the ability to make these projects actually successful uh, is a key component that sometimes gets missed. So make sure you've got the backing of the executive team and that uh, not only do you have that bottom-up kind of trickle from the engineers and the technical folks, but also that top-down trickle that this is a strategic, highly important project to the, the company's success and that you have executive buy-in for it. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, we we didn't touch upon that, um, but that that executive buy-in is is super critical, both obviously at the, the procurement stage, but um, both culturally and and um, strategically. So thanks for covering uh, that off, guys. Uh, we have gone a little bit over time, um, but I'd like to thank everybody for their contributions. Um, there was some really good coverage of this theme, so I'd, I'd encourage all the listeners to use uh, this webinar as an asset to, to showcase sort of, I guess, where the environment's going, um, a little bit around the strategy and, and the technology. So Rebecca and Chris uh, and Nick, thank you so much for, for joining us. And Rebecca and Chris, I, I hope you have a, um, a, a very good Halloween, which kicks off for you guys in a couple of hours. Big thanks to Rajan and James for their contributions on that one and uh, Dropbox Business for obviously driving some uh, interesting thought leadership around this space. And I think, you know, as, as you sort of reflect on sort of where the questions were coming from the audience, um, there definitely is a bit of a challenge from enterprise in terms of uh, creating the right kind of awareness and the right blueprint um, for, for execution. Um, so we'll look forward to obviously covering that off in greater detail. Uh, in, in future events. 
guys, thanks so much as always. Really appreciate it. If if you um if you got to the end, as as they say, um, feel free to jump on strategynext.com.au. Um, and this webinar is obviously there, and you can have a good listen to the to the entire piece as well. So thank you so much.